You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. How's quarantine going for you? It's going, definitely. I've uh, played a lot of Resident Evil 3, which seems appropriate given given the uh, parallels. Ah, yes. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know that the nemesis is quite as tangible uh, in real life as it is in Resident Evil 3, but uh, point point taken. Um, I'm I'm working on a playthrough of Persona 5 because I want something that has very little to do with our situation right now. And uh, I think Persona's about as far away from that as you can get without just getting... Well, I guess Persona is pretty fantastical, but... You know. Well, I, I suppose it depends on how much you see the world through Jungian archetypes, but... Yeah, looking at the news today, uh, I have really stopped paying attention to the total number of cases because that information is, as we talked about, I think it was last week, is so skewed. I've started paying a lot more attention to total number of deaths and total number of hospitalizations, and I saw this morning that uh, I believe we have hit over 11,000 deaths in the U.S. at this point, um, which is, you know, that number is going to grow, and it might double or even more so by the end of this week. This is supposed to be uh, one of the hardest weeks of this whole pandemic. Uh, potentially the hardest if if this is truly the peak. But we'll see. Um, 11,000 is, is not anything to scoff at by any stretch. Uh, and Certainly. That's, uh, that's tough. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I know anyone personally who's who's passed on from this. I know friends of friends and loved ones of friends who have uh, who've passed on from this and there have been a few there have been a handful of well-known individuals celebrity types who have lost their lives as a result of this as we're talking now i think boris johnson the prime minister of the uk is in icu right now for coronavirus uh he's he's in intensive care i guess i don't know if they have a dedicated unit or how that's being administered but uh, everything I've seen, and I'm very sorry to interrupt, but uh, just because Johnson is a high-profile individual, last I've seen, he is in the ICU, but as best I've been able to parse out the data, he's in the ICU only because they want to be able to respond quickly if something does happen. Uh, he seems to only need nominal ventilator support and is mostly stable. But my assumption is that he went to the ICU because of how serious it can get. Right. But still, it's noteworthy, of course. Well, and their government functions a little bit uh, differently than our own in that my understanding is there's not a dedicated... Uh, person according to the letter of the law who would take his place if he were incapacitated now they've already figured out who it would be i'm not suggesting that you know it would be total anarchy if he had to step out of that position or if he was forced out of that position for uh, this reason or any other but it's in it's interesting that you know there there's not that dedicated guy that uh, the the position of the person who would take his place changes um because it's not directly tied like it is uh, in America to a particular position. And so 
Yeah, it's something I, w- I was interested to hear. Of course, you know, want to be praying for him as well as everyone else who's suffering from this. I mean, that's that's obviously the most important thing is that people get well no matter what their position is. But he's he might be he might be the highest profile person to have gotten it and also been severely affected by it. You know, because we we've seen celebrities. Uh, we've seen celebrities catch it, and we've seen other individuals have it worse and even pass on from it. Um, but he, he might be the highest profile individual uh, on whose life it's had a direct impact in a pretty negative way. Um, and so it's you know, it's interesting to see the spread of this. Uh, you know, you you hope this is the peak week. You hope things do sort of, sort of slow down from here. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, and part of the problem is we're getting a lot of conflicting information. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what's going to happen moving forward. Uh, I think you've probably noticed a couple of days ago, I think Sunday night or maybe it was just yesterday, the CDC uh, basically changed its position on face masks uh, in public uh, to where now the official recommendation is for everyone who goes out in public to wear one. Uh, in fact, I, I went to the grocery store I don't know, three or four hours ago, and I wore a cloth face mask that uh, was given to us. And this is my first time there, and about half the people there uh, were wearing face masks, and a few of us were wearing gloves. And, you know, that uh, a week ago, the official position was you don't need to wear one, and now it's you do, so you can help prevent the spread. Well, if, asympt- if asymptomatic people were trying to prevent the spread, um, Last week, I you would think they would have us wearing face masks this whole time, but you know, I it, there's there's a lot of confusing information, a lot of conflicting information, uh, a lot of statements being walked back, which I'm fine with if it's based on new information. But you know, it's it's getting to the point where it's it's becoming difficult to parse out what exactly is truth and what exactly is maybe more politically motivated than anything else. Right. And that's probably one of the most difficult things, because especially now there's the whole I will say it is at best overblown. But the notion that the World Health Organization has been very China centric throughout all of this. Now, it doesn't help that, uh, for instance, on Twitter for a while, uh, China's foreign minister was pushing outright propaganda and an alarming number of people, most of whom weren't like very high profile, but still an alarming number nonetheless, were just eating it up hook, line, and sinker. But also seeing some people just uncritically accept Chinese claims or even uncritically accept U.S. claims because our government officials can lie too, to be perfectly fair. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it is becoming increasingly difficult and uh, especially in an era where people's political convictions center mostly around one human being who happens to do a lot of work from the Oval Office right now that that's only making it more difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's the thing is with these different news organizations, even if they're reporting accurate factual information, at least as far as uh, they have access to, it can be tough for many people anyway to sort of accept the information based off of their track record. 
And likewise, uh, for many people who are maybe more critical of the president, it could be difficult for them to trust the president based off of, uh, you know, what might perceive to be a self-aggrandizing track record. When only part of the story gets reported by certain agencies, uh, when actions are taken and speeches offered, which seems to conflict with previous things without explanation, um, it can be difficult for you and I, you know, the lay people, if you will, regular citizens of this country to figure out what exactly we should be doing. Two days ago, we were told not to wear masks in the public. And now, uh, you know, there are some towns even here in Oklahoma that have basically made it illegal to walk off your property without a mask. Right. Yeah. And even that gets into a discussion about the uh, the interplay between civil liberties and all mm-hmm. and, and some people are going to hear that and say that i'm more concerned about the economy than human lives or anything like that and to that i say no i'm not i'm concerned about the implications that crises like these have for personal liberties because it's been even in my own state it's been remarkable how quickly people have gone from I hate Tate Reeves with every fiber of my being and don't want him to have any power whatsoever to Tate Reeves should have and use the authority of his office to make me stay at home. And and in other states, people don't despise their elected officials quite like people I know despise the governor of Mississippi. And so it'll be interesting to see just how much people are willing to cede over. And even beyond that, it's also, and by the way, cut me off if you need to, Chris, because I am, I'm having to contain myself. Oh, you're good. You're good. You keep going. I just, I always like to give that disclaimer, but uh, there are some people who find, uh, what's been deemed essential, uh, dubious at best. Uh, For instance, um, uh, this might get me in trouble with some people, but I'm not 100% sure why Planned Parenthood needs to remain open right now. Yeah. Just just to be honest. Well, I think there's an argument there for why they would need to be open, period, uh, let alone in a... Oh, no, certainly. That's a given. Yeah. Well, you know, it's something if if the argument is and I don't I don't buy the argument, but if the argument is uh, that they provide essential medical services to women um, and it's not just abortion based or it's not even mostly abortion based, which, again, I take issue with both of those statements. but if that is the case, I, I think that's the argument is, you know, we're uh, you obviously there are some elective operations that have been tabled. Uh, dental work entirely outside of emergency dental work has been tabled. Um, but people are going to the doctor for things other than uh, other than coronavirus. Um, you know, if you get the flu, if you get strep throat, you can still be seen by a doctor. It may it might not be as easy. Uh, and you might end up doing it via the internet, but you can still be seen. Um, you know, there are still certain clinics open, and that's the argument I think 
is that if you're going to say if if you're going to hold the position that they provide essential medical services, um, then that would fall in line. Again, I disagree with the premise, but if you accept the premise is true, then uh, you I, I think that's the conclusion you draw from that is that well they they're just like these other essential medical providers. I wanted to get back to the governor thing because I've noticed the same thing here in Oklahoma with Governor Stitt. And there, there are more people here that like him than probably like uh, Governor Tate. But uh, there's a lot of people here who who very much do not like him. Um, right. Uh, you know, when when the election when he was elected, uh, you know, the education was very hot button issue out here. It still is. Uh, uh, Oklahoma teachers are underpaid even relative to other uh, other teachers. Full disclosure, I'm totally biased. I'm married to one. But sure. but uh, for the longest time, and I, I don't know if it's still true now or not, but Oklahoma uh, had a lower average teacher salary than any of the states it bordered. Uh, it, it, and this was especially pertinent with Texas. Uh, at one point you had, uh, during the election and shortly after, you had uh Texas advertising in Oklahoma for teachers to come down because they would effectively get a 50% raise by doing so um by moving down to Texas so that being said Stitt is probably more popular than Governor Tate he's not the most popular governor the state has ever had by any stretch um but even this week you've seen uh sweeping power given to him basically for, for the sake of expediency um, you know, it's just we we need things done and we cannot wait uh, on a day to day thing from the representative government, uh, which, you know, I can I can understand the urgency of the situation, especially if in if information is changing on a day to day basis, as it seems like it is. Um, but like you said, the sweeping power to say, hey, I'm you know, you're not allowed to go to work. You're not allowed to go anywhere. We don't tell you you can go. Well, yeah, that may have some long-term ramifications. Um, you know, we've, and I'm not suggesting that it's going to have long-term ramifications and go full-blown, you know, totalitarianism. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, there's there's a sense in which, excuse me, there's a sense in which you look at these things and you go, what happens if they don't fully let go of that power. What happens if we retain some of that? Hey, we're, we're, we're going to let you go where, where you want to go, except maybe these times or during this hour, or during this situation. Um, you know, the president has uh, effectively declared this a war. He's referred to this as a war several different times as a conflict. Um, you know, what happens if some of these same principles uh, start to become applied to uh, you know, a military style war, if you will, you know, war in the traditional sense, uh, even if it's abroad, what if, what if those sorts of powers are allotted to, uh, governors and the president moving forward in that way? I'm not suggesting that they will be, but the experiment, uh, could become more than academic if we're not careful too. Sure. So, yeah, that, that's something, uh, like you said, with that power, it, it's it's something we have to monitor and 
you know, like I mentioned this last week, I, I mentioned it with regard to the stimulus bill. Um, you know, whatever the government uh, can do and needs to do to address this, this is, you know, this is a unique thing. We haven't experienced this in our lifetime. And while there may be other pandemics, we're never we're likely not going to experience something like this again in our lifetime. That's that's my position. I, I realize that. Uh, we could, but you know, this is something that we we've, we've not seen in our lifetime. I've got no reason to think, I've got no reason to expect it. Not necessarily to think it, but to expect it to happen again um, anytime soon. You know, un- unless you want to suggest that, you know, we're going to move towards biological terrorism. But that's another argument. And I would argue that should be in its own category. Um, but when it comes to that, I, you know, I can appreciate the government being allowed to do things in a limited capacity that it wouldn't otherwise normally be allowed to do for the sake of uh, public health. But uh, if the stipulations on, on those powers aren't clear, if they're not limited to a specific instance, to a specific time, um, if it's not absolutely clear that this was only OK in this instance uh, and it's only OK – in this instance, because of these terms that we are defining in this way, then all of a sudden you can just construe the language moving forward and adopt these policies to whatever uh, situation you see fit to adopt them to. So, Sure, and, but as a counter, as a thought experiment, just think of powers that have been granted to, to governments for a crisis situation that they have then voluntarily let go. And as an example, um, before the 20th century, the United States didn't have a, a income tax outside of times of war. Now, people can't imagine life without income tax because of changes that were made in, if my memory serves, the 16th Amendment was, I want to say it was around 19. I want to say it was World War One, but um, that was supposed to be a we promise we'll stop doing this when we're not in the middle of a war. But that gradually became, well, we actually can't function at all without it. So that's it's not a dead set guaranteed thing every time, but it is interesting to just survey the the reluctance that governments have to let go of powers that they're given, even if they're explicitly told this is only for a limited time. Yeah. Um, so 16th Amendment was ratified uh, right before World War One, to your point. <clears throat> um, and, and there so- are arguments even about its actual ratification, but that that's far afield. I don't want to get into that. Yeah, that's uh that's that's for uh that's a discussion for a day where we have no news um <laughs> but uh so looking at that i agree i mean you you look at the government um it doesn't let go of power generally speaking um you've got a few individual leaders who <laughs> who try to make the government smaller but those are individuals and those are corner cases there's maybe a couple in the past 100, 120 years uh, of of the uh, of the presidency, there's maybe a couple of presidents, 
who tried to make it smaller. I can't think of all of them off the top of my head. Um, um, I, Coolidge, forever in our hearts. I was going to say Coolidge is the one that sticks out. Seems like Nixon didn't greatly expand it. I don't know if he made it. I don't know if it became smaller on sort of a net basis, if you will, if there was a net decline in government. Um, well, I mean, you don't really need to expand your own stated and explicit powers if you just have your cronies do stuff for you, to be perfectly fair. Well, you know, if the president if the president does it, it's, does not, it, a it's not illegal. Yeah, it's, it's not a crime. Um, uh, we we got to stop talking about Nixon. I'm sliding into my Futurama impression. Yeah, we'll we'll stop that then. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but with you know, I mean Reagan for as for as much as I appreciate some of the things he did, the the government grew under him. The government, uh, I mean, the government has grown under every subsequent president since Nixon, without question. Um, mm. You know, and and to varying degrees, right? Um, right, and, and in various different ways, uh, you know, I look at the government growth now as opposed to government growth when like Teddy Roosevelt was in office. Um, you know, most of, we've got state parks and and whatnot with Teddy Roosevelt versus, you know, with uh, with Obama, we had Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act, and that was a huge expenditure and it's still a huge expenditure. It's just now it's not funded. Um, you know, with the mandate being taken away, uh, which, now, you know, still an ongoing lawsuit for that. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, I, I did not mind the mandate being taken away. Um, <laughs> and, I also uh, do not. Yeah. It's a call. Supreme court said, call it what it is. It's a tax. Um, you know, that's, yep. Yeah, they're, they're right. And, you know, even now with with President Trump, as much as I uh, appreciate some of the things that have been done, um, as much as I appreciate some of the things that have been done financially with tax cuts, you know, he just passed the single largest emergency spending bill in world history. Uh, Two two trillion dollars. I know it's the largest in American history. I think it's the largest in world history. So I, I would probably say so. It's, I, I would need hard numbers to confirm it, obviously, but that it would also wouldn't shock me overwhelmingly. Right. And so, you know, it's something where, you know, I can like like we discussed last week and I don't want to just have last week's discussion again. But, you know, I can understand the need to address some things financially. And there are certain parts of that bill I have zero problem with whatsoever. Um, you know, I don't I don't mind some of the medical provisions that were made. I don't mind. uh Excuse me. I don't mind uh, some of the stuff with regard to small businesses. Uh, I, you know, the idea of giving small businesses loans and then, uh, you know, converting those loans into grants if they, you know, if they keep their workers on staff. I don't necessarily mind that, but excuse me. I don't understand why the Kennedy Center needed millions of dollars. I don't understand why NPR needed millions of dollars. Um, you know, but but. That, that's the thing is every single president, uh, you know, about half of them go into office saying that they're going to get rid of different agencies and they're going to get rid of different things. And it, it generally doesn't happen. Occasionally it does. Uh, but when you look at sort of the net outcome, every single president, almost every single president in the past 120 years 
has greatly expanded government. There's only been maybe a couple who have uh, shrunk it in any significant way. So uh, speaking speaking of government, uh, did you know that there is a presidential election this year? I, you know, people seem to have forgotten about it, but I haven't. Yeah, it's, uh, it is seven months and five days from, uh, no, it is less than seven months from today. Uh, November 3rd, um, is, is election day. We'll, uh, hopefully at that point we'll be able to go to the polls. Um, I would, I would like for this not to last into football season. That would be good. Um, but looking at it, it, you know, it's something where the campaign has, at least on the Democrat side of things, the campaign has basically been put on pause. Right. Um, I think, I think we are now competing with Joe Biden in the podcast space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure he understands what podcasting is, but, uh, We'll we'll see, uh, mainly uh, because uh, it's also you were correct about it being put on pause, but it's paused in the middle of a dumpster fire because allegations have resurfaced about uh, uh, Biden having uh, indiscretions, to put it mildly, uh, and uh, it has been very interesting to see people either completely abandon their previous mantras of believe all women and the Me Too movement basically not acting on these accusations, Uh, even with people like Alyssa Milano basically saying, yeah, I know he's been accused of sexual assault, but um, who cares, right? Um, Basically, there is a not insignificant contingent of of people who have out who are willing to say sure he's been accused of things that we would insist are disqualifying and with anyone else we would insist on treating as truth until proven false but i don't think you understand how bad the orange man is so it's been fascinating to watch that and even seeing Alyssa milano get chewed out by rose mcgowan um, I didn't expect the reboot of Charmed to be to have so much in inward-centered hostility. It's, it, it'll be interesting to see because Biden's whole thing, the whole campaign, when he gets into the general, because I mean, let's face it, he is the presumptuous nominee or presumptive Certainly. nominee at this point. Um, when he gets into the general. His entire campaign is going to be a return to normalcy. He's already made that statement a time or two. Um, you know, the idea is basically, hey, you've had Trump for the past four years. Now have someone that is exactly like not the last two presidents, uh, but all of U.S. history beforehand. Um, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, older white guy here, although some people will take it to mean that. I mean, fairly inoffensive, uh, which, depending on your term, uh, how you define inoffensive, uh, of course, here is important, uh, but fairly inoffensive, uh, not super left-leaning, more moderate, 
type who will get things done and and speak bluntly but you know stately and all this kind of stuff and you know that's the that's the image he's going to run on and you know putting aside the fact that if the allegations are true they're terrible um which that that should be self-evident we should not have to explain um why bad things are bad when they're overtly bad um which we might have to do uh that, that, that seems to be a thing we, we have to do more than we should. But with Biden, the thing is with his campaign, those things are going to be more devastating because he's running on that platform. Um, you know, you know, for for as uh, for as problematic as some of Trump's stuff can be, uh, you know, the one thing you can say about him is that that's not at all a part of his platform. Uh, his whole thing is. I'm different. I'm different than anything you've ever had before. Um, you know, I, you know, drain the swamp was a phrase, which, you know, there have been mixed degrees of success with that, I think. Um, but, you know, you, you, you look at that. And so with compared to Biden, who has to run on the sense of normalcy, the sense of stateliness, uh, I really think, to be honest, the the campaign is going to be won or lost in two different arenas. The first has almost nothing to do with Biden because nothing he says right now is relevant. Um, you know, Trump Trump could win this campaign right now, depending on how he handles this the rest of this coronavirus situation. Um, he he could win the election in May. Um, and then the second aspect of it is assuming Biden and Trump do get on a debate stage together, which um, part of me thinks there's no chance the Democrats let Biden on a debate stage with Trump. Um, oh, no, no. I There are a few times I hope for a presidential debate. That is one of the times where I don't hope for it. I am willing to, like perform eldritch rituals only described in H.P. Lovecraft novels if I can get that debate. Because, to quote one Twitter user who at the time went by Avankar Baller at By Your Logic, a potential Biden-Trump debate would be the best cultural product of the last 15 years. It would be the only art anyone actually remembers. Trump talking about hot guys he's met. Biden saying he was the first black senator. Stretches that are just transcribed as unintelligible. <laughs> it, it's uh, it would be something. Um, I I tend to think that Trump would probably be, at least be perceived to do better in those debates, just because he's got a very aggressive style. I'm not convinced. And here's the thing. Here's here's something you're going to hear a lot uh, from people who probably identify a little bit closer with us than with Biden. Um, you're going to hear a lot, and you're going to hear me say it occasionally, that you're not sure what you're going to get out of Biden uh, as far as his uh, capacity to uh, to speak, which you could argue the same thing about me to some extent. You hear all my stuttering and whatnot. Uh, but, sure. you know, with his capacity to lead uh, – you know, and, you know, with sort of the toll that the presidency could take on him uh, in a 
uh, in a mentally exhausting way. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say that he's uh, that he's senile, that he just can't function. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't think those terms are warranted unless they're absolutely proven true. Um, but some of the things he said in the campaign so far and some of his difficulties in offering up even just basic ideas have led to some questions about whether or not he can lead. Um, and I don't think that particular aspect is above questioning, just like, you know, the, the presidential nature of a particular candidate as was so prominent four years ago with Trump. I don't think that's off the table either. Uh, you know, but with, with Biden and this, this leads into something that just grabbed my attention and maybe run with it, uh, was Joe Rogan coming out, uh, over the, I guess over the weekend, maybe yesterday, and basically saying if, if he has to pick between Biden and Trump, he would pick Trump. The full quote is, I'd, I'd rather vote for Trump than Biden. I don't think Biden can handle anything. You're relying entirely on his cabinet. If you want to talk about an individual leader who can communicate, he can't do that. And I can't read the rest of the quote because there are expletives. Um, but he's... This is a guy who just two or three months ago endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary. And I actually, I can explain that. There is a not insignificant overlap between an underlying motivation between people who vote for Bernie Sanders as opposed to people who vote for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They are completely opposite in financial policy. Obviously, right. uh, Bernie being a, a socialist who wants to say it's not it's not socialism, it's democratic socialism. We just don't want there to be that many brands of deodorant. Um, but um, real thing he complained about once, by the way. But um, more than that, though, the underlying thing that Bernie and Trump have between them that Bernie bros can reach out to in Trump and and the MAGAs can reach out to in Bernie is that they are both an, on paper anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. If there is one thing that the average Bernie bro hates more than the bourgeois, which most of them are definitionally speaking members of anyway, that's a different story for a different day. Sure. It's establishment politics. Uh, and yeah, and go so, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I I, I want to pause you right there. Um, that's one of those terms that we talk about and we think we understand. Def, define that though. Like I I think you know if, if we're going to try and create that link between the two, it's important to know exactly what we're talking about because my my version of establishment politics may look different from uh, someone else's. I my guess is Trump's version of establishment politics looks a lot different from Bernie's, and yet. You know, there's sort of an underlying theme there that connects them. Can, can you define exactly what, what you're referring to there? Um, I can try. Sure. Um, defining things in politics is um, difficult for me at times, um, unless it's within a very specific set. But anyway, when I say establishment politics, I mean a very, a very general set of policies and opposition to policies that fall within a certain 
preconceived and allowed set and range. And so basically it's a question of what's inside the Overton window, what's at the edges of the Overton window and what's outside. And so when I say establishment policy, I mean, essentially, you just take the political compass, the graph that people do, authoritarian, libertarian, fiscally left, fiscally right, and you cut, you go to the center of it, you draw a square that encompasses those axes, and then inside that square is most of American politics over the last 50 years, we'll say, of Democrats all having standardized talking points of, well, infrastructure, education, rah, 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 and Republicans having their talking points of uh, defense spending, smaller government, rah, rah, rah. Whereas Sanders on one end is pushing for uh, greater fiscal control in an economy and loosening of uh, authoritarian impulses on the left. Trump is basically throwing a bomb and saying, look, Republicans for the last 30 years have been too afraid to be called meanies to do anything meaningful. So I don't care if you call me a meanie. So it's different impulses that are along the same axis, if that makes sense. I, I would probably throw in one thing there uh, that, you know, when I, when I think of the term establishment sort of comes to mind uh, is that, Encompassing everything you talked about with regard to establishment, there's a sense in which I am excluded. Um, you know right. that absolutely all of this operates uh, in theory with my consent, but in practice, I don't really have a say. Uh, now, part of that is just owing to the nature of the government that we have a representative government, and you know, uh, you know, in theory, I go out and I elect my representatives, and they represent me, and uh, you know, they do so to varying degrees of accuracy. But in reality, what happens is it, it becomes sort of cyclical, and I, I'm a little cynical about this, um, but it becomes sort of cyclical to the point of, well, these people are in office and they're going to get other people in office who think like them and who they like. And, you know, and all of a sudden what you realize is, oh, it's the same people and it's people who are a part of the uh uh, people who are a part of the same families and and whatnot and, and you see that um, you know some of these individuals I like some of them I really don't but but you see these see that with these dynastic uh, political families really sort of defining the establishment um, you saw it with the Bushes uh, George George and and Jeb all were involved in politics to varying degrees of success uh, you know George and Jeb. Uh, w and Jeb were both governors. H.W. Uh, and W. were uh, both presidents. Uh, you see it with the Clintons to some extent. You see it with uh, certainly the Kennedys are probably the prime example of this. Um, but you see that exclusion. And, and that's probably uh, what actually tipped the race. And I've got this lawnmower behind me here. It's great. Um what actually tipped the race in 2016 in favor of Trump was the fact that, you know, the the blue-collar worker in Michigan did not feel like he had any connection to Hillary. Um, 
you know, that did not feel like she cared for him or his situation. Whether she actually did or not, I, I don't know. I have my ideas about whether she did or not, but she didn't do a good job. Ex- she didn't do a good job expressing that. And that, you know, for the sake of getting elected and only for the sake of getting elected, but for the sake of getting elected, that's what's important is you, you have to be able to express that connection, whether or not it's actually there or how strong it is. Um, you know, and with with Trump, he, he made it clear that he was going to fight for them whether or not he actually was going to fight for them again that that's a separate question but you know that that's that idea of anti-establishment uh that i think encompasses everything you talked about within that little box uh you don't see extreme changes in government uh in the u.s and i think that's fine to most extent but then again the things that i would want to change are different than certainly what barney would want to change and, and whatnot um but it's that exclusion i mean you know, uh, e- even with someone like Bernie Sanders, who's, uh, you know, he's in one sense, he is a part of the establishment because he's been in government now for he's been in the federal government for 30 years, 40 years. Mm-hmm. It's his uh, only big boy job he's ever had. Yeah. Uh, uh, on the flip side, he's an independent because he doesn't fit neatly into that box. So, you know, it's. It's something where you know you'll see the occasional uh, individual. Typically, it's a it's a uh, representative or a senator who pushes against that. Ron Paul comes to mind uh, as someone who really pushed against that. Rand does to a lesser extent, um, but you know it, it's that exclusion. I, I think it's the biggest thing, and and Trump ran on that and won on that. The idea that. Your government doesn't care about you. Let me go up there. I'll fix it. We will start caring about you. Um, and with that establishment politics, you know, Joe Biden is seen as very much being a part of that. Um, you know, it, it's you've got this. You've got a guy. He he probably is better at expressing empathy a little bit, but than uh, than Hillary Clinton was. Um, I'll, I'll give him that much, but that that's a fairly low bar too. Ah, yes. If you're more empathetic than Hillary, what does it matter, Clinton? Well, really, you have the EQ of a wet piece of paper. Well, you know what? In 2016, that was really the only question that did matter. Uh, Like, it it matters if Hillary is the only opponent. Um, You know, and so we'll we'll see. Uh, I I think it's, it's jarring to me. Uh, to see Joe Rogan come out. He didn't endorse Trump per se, but he basically said, look, if I have to pick between one or the other, that's who I'm picking. Um, It's not surprising, but it's, it's a jarring indictment of, of, uh, you know, this concept of electability that's been pushed, uh, you know, by those backing Biden, that maybe, you know, this guy who's seen as being a free thinker, which, you know, well, uh, again, different people are going to have different ideas. But uh, this guy who's seen as being a fairly independent voice, if he's coming out and saying, no, I don't want any part of that, that that's that's an indictment of of Biden's electability. I don't know that Joe Rogan's endorsement means anything as far as drawing other people with him. Um, right. 
but I think it does mean something as far as saying something about each of the candidates. Right. So, um, the kind of people, if I may. Go ahead. Um, Rogan is very much in my admittedly limited experience with him. I don't know the man personally, obviously. But um, aside from the fact that he's essentially Oprah for men, which is not an insult towards him, by the way, I don't think he does at least. But uh, people like Joe, if I can put on my little junior psychologist badge, they are primarily drawn to genuineness rather than they are alignment with an agreement with their preconceived ideals and notions about the world. Because Joe is, by all accounts, more or less a left-leaning libertarian. Like, if you were to put him on a political axis, that would be where I'd guess he'd land. And so he would naturally align more with Sanders ideologically in some respects. But with Biden, Biden ultimately had the same problem that I really had with Hillary Clinton, of that they don't have positions of their own. They have the positions that they think will get them what they want. It's in essence saying, what do I have to tell you I will do and advocate for to get you to vote for me, as opposed to Trump and others like him or Sanders saying, here are my ideas here, why I think they're worth pursuing. Take it or leave it. I'd love to have you. But if you're not with me, I wish you well. And people like Rogan, I think at least, value that more than a person who is so malleable, like, to use the term again, an establishment Democrat or Republican. So I'm going to push back a little bit there because I think Trump is a little bit more malleable in a way that Sanders is not. Um, and that's fair. You know, you know, Trump running effectively as a populist uh, yeah. means that he's he's running basically on what will get him elected the difference is he's very very overt in that like that's that's a part of his his platform is you know i'll 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 go fight for you he doesn't i'm not convinced he really cares what what particular morals fighting for you means i mean this is a guy that you know at one point did identify as a democrat uh this is a guy that at one point was you know, brushing shoulders with the Clintons. You know, there are plenty of pictures of that sort of stuff that, that came Certainly. out. Um, you know, and this is a guy that, uh, you know, that that has been sort of a ubiquitous presence. Uh, you know, he did not he, he did not you know just sort of come out of nowhere as an individual. He came out of nowhere as a as a political candidate. Um, but that populism, when, when it's overt, uh, that's less problematic than. You know, I stood for this, but now I don't stand for it anymore. Why? Because you can't get elected if you're standing for it. Uh, that's that's different than saying, you know, we'll we'll go fight for what most of you want. Because you know, on a on a very personal level, what Trump probably wants is different than what most of the country probably wants. Um, but you know, h- how he should be evaluated isn't necessarily on his priorities. It should be on his policy. And so, you know, again, I like I said, I'm pushing back a little bit because I I don't think Sanders is all that malleable. If he was, I think he would have been the Democrat nominee in 2016, putting aside the uh, putting aside the, you know, the tampering that the DNC involved themselves in. Um, 
but uh, you know, if that race were run a little fa- more fairly and uh, Sanders was malleable, I think he becomes the the candidate. But at the same time, um, I don't necessarily see Trump's populism as being inherently problematic. Uh, sure. You know, it, it, it can lead to problematic things, of course. Populism can be taken to its own extreme, um, you know, to where you have effectively mob rule. But uh, at the same time, he's not he's not running on the pretense of this very strict set of ideas, this very strict code. There's you know, there's a few things that he's run on and one or two of them have come to pass and one or two of them very have not. The tax cuts did come to pass. um, But as of yet, we don't have a giant wall connecting, uh, uh, you know, spreading the entire border between Mexico and the U.S., and so, you know, I, I it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. To be honest, uh, as far as the policy is concerned, I think we're at a point, uh, both last election and this election, that the policy really doesn't matter uh, outside of a couple of particular talking points. Um, you know, abortion will be an issue which causes people to vote one way or the other. Uh, it'll be a hardline issue for Always. a lot of people. Um, and I think that's OK. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a, you know, personally, I'm not a single issue voter, but I am a single issue voter in the sense that, you know, you, you gotta, there are some things you just have to get right. Um, you know, that doesn't mean I'm voting for the other guy if you're wrong about them. Uh, but it does mean that I, you know, I can't in good conscience vote for you if you support certain things and abortion's probably at the top of that list. Um, yeah. And for if and I'm sorry to interject. No, go ahead. But um, abortion, especially uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, was right. And it cost her a bit when she called that the third rail for Democrats, um, being that that's an issue that for Democrats, at least you can't vary from them now on and be accepted into their fold. And it's why you've had people like Biden kind of flop back and forth on different things. Uh, and going back and forth, for instance, on a support of the Hyde Amendment, which is useless anyway in a world where money is fungible. But that, again, that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But um, we're going to see issues like that get hammered on. And in some respects, this is going to be a repeat of 2016. And it's going to be interesting to watch uh, people go it's going to be interesting to watch people's brains melt more so than they did on uh on the eve of that fateful tuesday because then people thought it was a fluke and there were people that still think it's a fluke or that still hold on to a russia conspiracy or this or that this time around they're not going to have those excuses well, or at least if they hold on to them, people outside of themselves are going to look at them and be like, that was four years ago. It's time for you to move on. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how people react and cope to that. Well, and, and one the, way or another. The other thing is, um, to, to that point, Biden is not. Biden might be the least exciting candidate uh, the Democrats have put forward. Oh, goodness. Um, 
ever? Nah, maybe not ever. He's the least exciting candidate since Walt uh, Walter Mondale, maybe. Wow, you are uh, you are outstripping me in your political science knowledge right now, Christopher. Because I have no idea who that is. Well, that should tell you something, because he used to be the vice he used to be the vice president. Um, Walter Mondale, uh, he was, no, uh, he was, he was Jimmy Carter's vice president. Uh, no, Al Gore was, uh, Al Gore was Bill Clinton's vice president. Um, uh, Walter Mondale was, uh, was Clinton or was Clinton's, you got me messed up, was, uh, Jimmy Carter's vice president. Um, I forget if he ran against Re- – no, Carter would have run against Reagan in, in 80. Uh, but in 84, Wal- Walter Mondale ran against uh, uh, ran against Reagan in what was actually a fairly good-natured uh, uh, campaign, but that was also owing to the fact that um, Mondale was never, ever going to win that election. Uh, uh, so – there are 538 electoral college votes. Um, right, right. Re- Reagan won 525 of them. Uh, Mondale only won the District of Columbia and his home, I think, his home state of Minnesota. So, good uh, night. Uh, it's worth Jeez. noting that it's worth noting that I also believe that was the first time that a major party had a female. Uh, on the ticket, Geraldine Ferraro was the was Mondale's vice presidential candidate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's Mondale. Mondale might have been more exciting than Biden, and and that's the thing. Like as much as as much as people dislike Hillary, um, and as much as as much as people um, disdain a lot of what she and her family stand for. People, at least in 2016, were undoubtedly excited about the prospect of electing the country's first female president uh, and excited about this person who, you know, uh, to give a little bit of credit where credit is due here. um, She did stand up to Trump in a way that I'm not convinced Biden will be able to do. Um, It didn't work. It didn't work. But she she did stand up to Trump. uh, the the delete your account tweet is one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen. Um, you know, just uh, just as far as one liners are concerned. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if, if you've got someone who people were genuinely excited about, if not as excited they would have been maybe for someone else, then what makes you think Biden's going to do? Any better because at that point, if you're putting forth Biden as your candidate, you're basically saying um, the country's opinion of Trump has to be lower now than it was when we elected him. Uh, that right. that's the decision you're making there by putting him forward as your candidate. Um, and you know, if you don't believe the that the DNC effectively put him forward, um, you know, you didn't pay attention to what happened right before Super Tuesday. Uh, when all the Democrat candidates outside of Sanders and Gabbard fell in line um, and endorsed him, um, except for, I guess, Warren was still in the race. And so it, uh, forever in our hearts, Elizabeth Warren. Well, maybe yours, but 
<laughs> and people saying, oh, Sam likes Laura. No, she's forever in my heart for very different reasons. <laughs> well, you know. Um, so that that's something. We'll, we'll see how that ends up shaking out. I think, um, I really, really believe, though, because of the nature of this virus, um, because of the nature of this pandemic, and because of the universal universal impact it is having on people, there, you know, it does not matter your socioeconomic status. You are affected by this thing. Um, you know, I I think there is a chance. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm not saying it's even likely to happen. But there's a chance that the debate uh, over who the president will be will be settled before there's actually a debate. Um, you know, because of the public perception coming out of the pandemic is that Trump did even just an adequate job getting us through it, then he should be a shoe in for reelection. And right. if the public debate out of it or coming out of it is that he really, really messed up, then it almost doesn't matter who the Democrat candidate is. And and that's kind of what they're saying with Biden is, you know, here is Guy. Guy is relatively inoffensive, putting aside his indiscretions, alleged indiscretions for a moment. Um which we'll see how much is made of that on the campaign. I'm sure most of that will come from the right. Uh, but here, oh, yeah, no, it's already dead in the water right. in the media. But that's well, again different story. So, so here's here's uh, here is guy. You can elect orange man bad, or you can elect guy pick. Um, well, you know, and so the question then becomes, how much do you buy that? phrase orange man bad uh to quote well who coined the phrase orange man bad i don't know but i want to give them a medal because by jove they deserve it uh, mainly by, because by... it spurred on the op- the opposite phrase orange man rad and i don't know if i came up with that or saw it and just absorbed it into my conscience but i get a lot of mileage out of orange man bad orange man rad so Thank you to the progenitor of those phrases. Um, I was I was curious. I it, it probably came from Reddit. So okay. every everything originates with Reddit. Um, okay, the earliest, according to knowyourmeme.com, which I know that's not just the most scholarly of sources, but the earliest record of the phrase "orange man bad" comes from a Trump general thread on 4chan's backslash poll backslash board. The post was posted in October 20th of 2016. Uh, Apparently this person either speaks a different dialect of English than I do because uh, that's a, um, that's not a proper use of N that should be on October 20th. But anyway, it is unknown if this is the first ever use of the phrase. And uh, on December 16th, 2017, Redditor Unconscious Tef submitted a post titled Orange Man Equals Bad to r slash coaxed into a snafu, featuring an illustration of a mock Trump tweet followed by a reply with, you should be killed, poo head. Prior to being archived, the post received upwards of 930 points, 85% upvoted. So, yeah. So it allegedly came from 4chan, as many things do, from the yeah. hacker known as 4chan. Yeah, that's uh, many things. Let's qualify. Many, many awful things. Uh, right, right. So, um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I think 
there's a chance um, there's a chance that this could be settled once we get out of this pandemic. And if it's not settled, then I think it's all but guaranteed to be settled at the debates. Um, you know, it, it's it's really just going to depend on like this. This event is so monumental. Um, it, it it's going to sway the election one way or the other. It's just it just depends on what people's perception of the president is coming out of it. Uh, you know, it, imagine if 9-11 instead of happening in the first what eight months nine months of bush's uh first term happened within the last nine months you know that that would have been all anyone would was talking about in the campaign but at that point you had more material to talk about with regard to uh you know the war on terror picking up and you know different uh how how his administration had responded to those things uh, on a more long-term basis you're not going to get that here uh, you're going to get uh, the in-the-moment responses. You're going to get these daily press briefings, and we're going to see a little bit of what this looks like on the other side and how long this lasts before people make a decision on whether or not they want the guy who's led them this far through it to keep leading them. Uh, and I really do believe, as much as we might talk about uh, other policy issues and other things that might be important, I really do believe this – uh, this coronavirus and how he continues to handle it will be the biggest determining factor of whether or not he gets reelected. Um, right. And I think that's fair because I've seen talk of it being the thing that could Herbert Hoover, his presidency. Yep, it, it and could. I think that's true enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in that situation, Herbert Hoover become or Trump becomes just like Herbert Hoover in the sense that it doesn't matter who the other guy is. He's not getting reelected. Um, and so, uh, I, I want to shift gears hard uh, because we're uh, we're going on for a bit, and uh, you uh, you messaged me the other night and told me that you had a scalding hot take that you needed to vent about, um, and uh, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna let you run with that in light of some things that you've seen. This is not totally and completely detached from everything going on. To be clear. Um, you know, and, and I've seen some good material posted. You posted a great article dealing with God and calamity. Um, you know, and, and other individuals have talked about, uh, you know, the interaction of God and this virus and different things. Uh, but you, you said you had a, what might be perceived to be a scalding hot take. And so I'm just going to introduce it as such and, and let you run with it here. Okay, well, can I read just what I said to you verbatim? Because sometimes it's important to get the exact words in. So, too many people in our fellowship care more about not being or sounding like Calvinists than actually holding beliefs that are faithful to Scripture and the history of our faith. Way too many of those people. And this was spurred on because of a question, and I think it's a good and fair question, uh, around open theism that was posted to a Facebook group called Friends of the Restoration Movement. I won't name names because I don't remember the names and uh, I don't need to throw people under the bus uh, because it's nothing against these people. But the question was asked, over the next 30 years, which model do you think will be more predominant in Restoration Movement churches? 
excuse me, open theism or classical theism? And that is a good question. It's a great question, in fact, because that's a live debate. And there's even been a great deal of stir outside Restoration Movement churches over that. Uh, James Dolezal has written a great deal about that. I've got a few of his works, uh, All That Is In God, for instance, about classical theism and uh, going against open theism. But uh, one of the people on that group, uh, I'm sure a very otherwise intelligent person, nice guy, I, I didn't just go and dig for things to f say bad about him. I'm not going to try to say, oh, I found his racist tweets from 20 years ago. But uh, he said, classical theism is a little, sounds a little too Calvinist for me. And this made my eyes start bleeding and my hair start falling out. Because, uh, Chris, you might know this, but uh, I have a reputation for kind of being a defender of Calvinism, not because I personally hold to it, but because after reading Calvinists and actually interacting with the material, I kind of looked around and thought, a lot of these people have no idea what they're talking about. Like, they'll say things that are just demonstrably untrue. And I found in some instances, when you push back on it and say, well, hold on, that's not fair, or, you know, that's actually untrue, here's a citation that refutes that, they'll just, they'll just keep going like you didn't say anything. I've had people that will say, well, Calvinists and atheists are the same in their view of free will. No, they're not. The atheists get more offended by that than the Calvinists. The Calvinist just rolls his eyes. The atheist says, don't you dare lump me in with those people. I don't even believe in God. Well, and, and to interject here for a second, it's worth noting that, a, that atheists are actually split on their views of uh, free will versus determinism. Um, Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's something where you've got atheists who do absolutely believe in a sense of free will. They don't necessarily know what instills it versus, you know, you know, absolute determinism. It's just, you know, their determining factors are uh, biological and environmental in nature as opposed to uh, as opposed to divine, uh, which is, you know, uh, what Calvinism would tend toward anyway. But, uh, you know, but before I let you back in, it, you know, with regard to you defending Calvinism, to be clear, uh, you, you're talking about really even more so. In, in, in viewing what you do with it, even more so than defending Calvinism, is, is you're interested in, interested in burning down uh, straw men uh, oh, yes. that that people claim are Calvinism, which it's it's not. Right. Absolutely, and I would I would want to do the same with any other group. Um, I I don't like being misrepresented. Uh, one of the things that will very much if you argue with me. Uh, one of the things that will go that will make me go from we are having a friendly to debate to okay my fangs are out and I'm going to rip your rhetorical throat out is putting words in my mouth or trying to make my positions out to be something completely different that just even thinking about it just gets my blood boiling like it makes so 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 what you're saying is <laughs> don't, don't don't do this to me Chris. <laughs> Um, you, you <laughs> mentioned a couple of uh, you mentioned a couple of, of his 
definitions here, classical theism versus open theism. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what the no. I can. I want to preface it by saying that these are not areas that I am very studied in. I have James Dolezal's book on classical theism. It's a small book. It's about 120 pages. I have not read it yet. I am working on it. It's something I want to read because it is interesting to me. But um, open theism, and this is from uh, Wikipedia, full disclosure, but I do want to note the citations and footnotes where they uh, come up. Open theism, also known as openness theology and free will theism, is a theological uh, movement that developed within Christianity as a rejection of what they would call a synthesis of Greek philosophy and Christian theology. The main, uh, in the main effects that at least are evident to me in open theism is the notion that God does not know specific events in history as a part of his divine decree, but rather that he knows eventualities, contingencies, and the like, and as those eventualities and contingencies actualize, his own knowledge develops from that. And he is aware of all the contingencies, but in a way, he learns with us which contingencies will actualize. And I'm sure that a open theist proper could explain that more fully. But again, I don't want to polemicize it because, again, I don't fully understand it. It's not something I've read up on. But a notable uh, uh, open theist theologians include, uh, if my memory serves, uh, Thomas J. Ord and Greg Boyd, if my memory serves, is also an open theist. I could be mistaken, and I will happily retract if I am. But Roger E. Olson, a well-known Arminian theo theologian, uh, says that it's probably one of the most significant uh, motivators in controversies over the doctrine of God in evangelical thought. So it's a big deal. And uh, John Piper, for instance, wrote a book called Beyond the Bounds about open theism. If I understand rightly, he attempted to have the rules of the Southern Baptist Convention changed uh, such that open theists could not be members of the Southern Baptist Convention in good standing. Why he would do that beyond his conviction that it's heresy, I don't know, because fun fact about the SBC, you don't have to subscribe in full to the Baptist faith and message to be a member of the SBC in good standing. So I don't quite understand making a standard that you don't actually have to hold to, but that gets into church polity that is outside my wheelhouse. Well, and if memory serves, uh, ETS actually had a vote on it maybe 15 years ago um, where they narrowly voted to, I think, not exclude those who subscribe to uh, open theism. And so, you know, even as recently as a decade and a half ago, it was, uh, arguably the the hot button issue within, if you want to say evangelicalism, uh, however you want to phrase it, um, you know it's 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 an issue that I think a lot of us are sort of are sort of at least within churches of Christ are sort of maybe not blind to, but we don't we don't consider it as much in part because you know we don't put as much 
stock in the foreknowledge of God uh, and, and the impact that it has on our own salvation. Maybe not even as we should. Uh, you know, maybe we should be putting more emphasis on that. Um, but we certainly don't put as much emphasis on that as uh, some of our other religious friends. Um, you know, and so that's that's something. With that foreknowledge of God, I've heard open theism, one model of it being described as, as God basically knowing all all possible outcomes of all uh, of all possibilities or something to that effect. That there's a web of outcomes and he knows uh, every possible decision that could be made and all the ramifications of every decision that could be made. Um, but uh, that he doesn't necessarily know which ones will be chosen, if you will. Um that he is uh it makes him more i guess fluid um but you know with with classical theism having a bit more rigid approach uh, i would say i think that's that's a fair fair way of putting that with regard to god's foreknowledge at least um and, and so why uh now that we've got those terms defined why why did the specific comment of of a classical theism being a little too Calvinist for you uh, set off alarm bells uh, other than maybe sort of the obvious reason of, Oh, it's a person associated. Well, maybe it is just the obvious thing of person saying something is bad because it's Calvinist. Well, there's that. And there's also the fact that uh, classical theism is not relegated to Calvinism. Yep. Like, not even remotely. Uh, it is a core component of Roman Catholic thought. Uh, I want to say that uh, Thomas Aquinas was a very uh, stout expositor of such a notion, especially the notion of the doctrine of divine simplicity. That is, that God doesn't have parts. That's a key component of the historical picture of the triune God that also intersects with his immutability, his unchanging nature. It intersects with his impassibility, the fact that God does not experience emotion in the ways that we would think of him experiencing emotion. Uh, there was a there was a controversy over impassibility. Uh, years ago, within the last 10 years, if my memory serves, uh, especially centered around the publication of a book called God is Impassioned and Impassable. And so that there was a kind of a kick up over that, although that debate seemed a bit more friendly um, than some others that have come about. But essentially, um, there's a contingent of people who base all of their theological convictions around Calvin bad or Rome bad. And even me as a person who has very strong opinions about Roman Catholicism that I won't get into here, um, that's not fair. And even going beyond that, any of your intellectual, theological, or political convictions, if they are only centered around what you are opposed to, the question has to be asked, okay, what happens if you win? Well, let's just say that um, a person is an anti-Calvinist and 
that is the whole of their argument that is the whole of their uh, their raison d'etre if we may sure and they dedicate their entire learning to defeating and dismantling calvinism okay great what happens when you succeed what do you do after that because for me the goal of theology is not to tear other things down necessarily except where as necessary sure to build and for me there's no point in putting forward an idea be it just merely intellectual philosophical or whether it be theological or political if you're only putting that idea forth because you want to blow the foundations out from something else uh there's the old quote about um deconstructionism of you eventually have to build something with all those bricks you took apart right right and so that is where my issues fundamentally come from yeah i and and to make it a personal thing there's i I say personal a, a bit more personal there's a couple of things I'm thinking the first both have to do with our congregations specifically the first is I've heard it said by not a few preachers you know oftentimes the church becomes known for uh, what it's against Uh, you know and and Calvinism and reformed thought is just a part of that Uh, you know we become known for being against a particular sexual ethic we become known for being against a particular vile practice we become known for being against this that and the other uh and to be clear we need to be against the things we need to be against nobody is sitting here nobody here is sitting here and suggesting that it's okay to be accommodating to false doctrine uh to that it's okay to be accommodating towards sin but absolutely some dragons have to have their heads cut off yes uh, yes, that is a lovely illustration. Um, uh, <laughs> but now you make me want to go play Skyrim. Um, but when uh, when it comes to sort of turning that cover, people need to know what we're for more than anything else. Um, yeah, I think of First Peter chapter two and verse nine. I think of this passage often when it comes to uh, when it comes to our role, and it talks about it appropriates language from Exodus 19. I preached on this on Sunday, so it's fresh. Uh, But it it appropriates language from Exodus 19, where it talks about the Israelites being uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured possession, um, you know, and and Peter appropriates that to talk about the church. And he he says so uh, explicitly at the end of verse 9, he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called him called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, basically saying you talk about what Jesus has done for you. That that's the focus, that it's not necessarily – we don't start from a negative position as Christians. We start from a positive position. Here's what Jesus has done for us, and here's what it means for us. Uh, and then we sort of implicitly in many cases and explicitly in some, uh, but we argue from what we're about. That's our basis for what we're against, not the other way around. Um, because like you said, if you start from the negative position – uh, then you don't actually have a a, a substantial position. Uh, you're just anti whatever. Uh, this is how some of our own uh, some of our own uh, brethren in anti institutional congregations have been referred to as antis. And maybe maybe we've gone a little overboard doing that, but we they've been called that in large part because they're known for what they're against, rightly or wrongly. They're known for all the different things that they 
take an anti-position on. Um, uh, the other thing that sort of stuck out to me, and it's the same thing that made you angry, but I, I see it on a practical level. Um, you know, it, it, it's something that I see good friends sort of, uh, you know, run afoul of doing. And you know, it's the idea that because a denomination does it, because something that or a group that isn't the Church of Christ does it, then it is inherently wrong. Um, that it's not that we're anti-bad practices even, it's that we're anti the other, uh, because the other isn't the church, and so if they're doing it, it must be wrong. Um, you know, you will hear in discussions, well, we don't want to be like those Baptist churches. We don't want to be like that church down the street. That's not the point. If they're doing something and it happens to be biblical, great. Um, you know, them doing sh- something shouldn't have anything to do with what we do as the church. Uh, right. You know, you know what, what we do, uh, I'll get personal with it. What we do at Bridge Creek, uh, there, there's a decent-sized Baptist congregation um, maybe a half mile from our building. Maybe it's a hair more. I'm, I'm really bad with long distances. Um, but there's, there's a Baptist church a little ways from the building. It's real close to the school system. Most people... Uh, either pass it uh, coming to the building or maybe if they're going into town or whatever. Um, what they do should not have an influence, positive or negative, uh, on what I'm doing, except in extreme cases where I might be able to uh, – either in extreme cases where you know, necessity strikes, tornadoes have hit Bridge Creek, for instance. Okay, we're, we're not going to completely self-isolate from the community because uh, – because you know, there's the other down the street uh, or alternatively, um, you know, if if there is a uh, well, there may be other specific situations, but uh, generally speaking, what they do should not influence what I do. And if they happen to do something uh, that we perceive to be biblical, then great. You know, that that's I'm not in the interest of being, uh, you know, anti You'll hear this phrase a lot, anti-denominational, uh, not in the not in not at all interested in doing that. I'm interested in being biblical, which is something that gets that's a phrase that gets flown around flippantly within congregations. But I think it's important here because if I'm biblical and someone else is biblical in a particular area, fine. And if they're unbiblical in a different area, well, you know, I'm still going to be biblical, but. Uh, you know, I, I get very frustrated um, when I – and you see it online more than you hear it. People are better better about it in person than they are online, which makes all the sense in the world, I think. But um, I get very frustrated when I say that we shouldn't do something because the Baptists do it or the Presbyterians do it or the Lutherans do it or the Catholics do it or maybe, you know, it's something that – uh, even atheists subscribe to, and they they do it, and it's something and something we do looks like something they do. Um, you know, that's not the point. Um, in my effort to uh, not look like the world, not be like the world, I don't base that off of a negative position. I base it off the positive position of being holy as God is holy. To borrow from First Peter chapter one and Leviticus nineteen. Um, I don't Absolutely. base I don't base it out of a negative premise. I base it off of a positive one. 
right? And even then, just getting into it uh, from the ad absurdum angle, how far are you willing to go? Because Baptists historically affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, okay. the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the cessation of miraculous gifts, and so on and so forth. Many things that we would say, no, those are definitely those are definitely important things that we ought to hold to because they are they are good and right. But again, if Calvin bad and everything Calvin believes is bad, he believes those things too. And, and and to be clear, we're not arguing accepting any of any one particular uh, teaching other than scripture wholesale. Certainly, you know, the, correct. You know, it's it's you, you know it is worth being critical. Uh, but that's a part of being critical is you know, actually figuring out okay what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, and on the one hand, you'll have people that say, well, why do I need to read? Calvin or Luther uh, or, you know, anyone else for that matter. Why, why can't I just read the Bible? And, and you, you hear that a lot. I've heard that plenty. Um, and, and I, I would typically offer two things. The first is you're right. You don't, you need to focus on scripture. They would probably argue that by the way. Uh, but, yeah, but, but you absolutely. need, but, uh, but you're right. Focus only on scripture, but, you're not doing that, are you? You're you're also supplementing that with other readings that you deem worthy. If you're consistent on that and you're only reading scripture, more power to you. But most people aren't consistent on that. Um, and so the second thing then becomes, oh, okay, so if you're already going to read other people, even if you know you're going to disagree with Calvin and Luther, and you probably should disagree with them on a few things. Um, Definitely with Luther later in life, certainly. Yeah. Um, if... Uh, if you're going to disagree with them, uh, you at least need to understand, first of all, what the position is, which, like you said at the start of all this, people just misrepresent the, their positions left and right. Um, it doesn't help that, at least in Luther's case, that his name has been associated with something that very, like, is very commonly practiced that he probably wouldn't uh, have, you know, much to do with, have had much to do with if he were... You know, I don't know that Luther would have been a member of the Lutheran Church, is what I'm getting at. Um, not the modern Lutheran Church in most cases. Maybe no. like the Missouri Synod, but like. Yeah. And so, with, uh, you know, but the other thing is, these are hugely in, influential uh, individuals. Um, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant organization on earth. Is that right? Correct. Uh, 17 um, million members in the United States, if my memory serves. Yeah, I mean, uh, and at that point, they're competing. Uh, you know, they're they're not competing on a scale with uh, with Catholics and uh, the and Muslims and and even Jews um, as far as sort of that global capacity. But at the same time, you know, you've got one branch of one denomination. Uh, who by itself is larger than many other denominations as a whole. Um, and so with those, uh, with that, you've got these hugely influential writers. You need to understand why they're influential. 
you need to actually engage with what they're saying. Um, and, and I'm again, I'm I'm not saying that you have to do that to be a faithful Christian, uh, but I do think it's worth doing that if you're going to try and be a faithful, to use a term that we don't like in Churches of Christ, but that we should probably use more, at least in a correct sense, witness. Like if you're going to tell people about what Jesus has done for you, and you're going to engage them in a way where you know going into it that you disagree with them on things, um, you know, sort of understanding the background of that. And, and again, that's highly individualized. That's that's not something you should ever just fully assume going into a conversation. But th- these individuals are so influential uh, over the course of religious thought um, that. You know, having misunderstandings about what they believe is is frankly inexcusable, uh, given that it's so accessible and so influential. And also, you know, it, it, it's something where they have worthwhile things to say. It, it's not even just an arguing, you know, OK, I, I want to study up on it so I can tear it down later, which that might be noble on its own. I don't know. But. You know, they, they've got worthwhile things to say, even if, you know, going into it, you are going to disagree with some of the things they have to say, challenging your thought uh, and understanding why you believe what you believe um, is important. Uh, you know, and, and I could sit here and rant on. I just I get tired. Very few things get me amped up quite like saying uh, it's bad because the church down the street is doing it. So it must be bad. No, the only things that are bad are sinful things, things that scripture itself has prohibited. It does not matter what another group does do or does not do. So uh, it, it mm, your turn. Cause I, uh, I need, I need off the soapbox. Mm. Well, uh, we, we can go back and forth, but um, to really build on, on, the illustration I used that is probably long since forgotten from the salt that we're pouring on everything. Um, dragons have to die, but kingdoms have to be built when the dragons are dead. Um, you, when we decide that opposition is the only thing we're doing, one, we've lost sight of the goal of the restoration movement. And that is a whole can of worms that I could open up. I will I will open it up just enough so you can see just how dire the dire worms are in this can. I was but gonna I, go with I was gonna go with wormy, but you know. Well, uh, I I went the D and D thing, so uh, they're dire slag worms. They're the size of cities, and they swallow them in whole. But um, the the other scalding hot take that I have is that. Many in the churches of Christ, subconsciously, because I don't want to accuse them of being just malicious or outright just disingenuous or anything like that, because I don't have evidence that they are. And I don't want to accuse things of people that I don't have evidence for. That's not fair. And as much as I'm only grown about fairness, I should be fair to people. But there are some who I get the distinct impression that they are more concerned about restoring the church of the 1950s than they are the church of the New Testament. And the whole point of the restoration movement was not to go back to a specific moment in history, but to go back to the New Testament and say, what does this say has to be done? 
And so there are going to be people that will try to add things, that try to take away things. And the impulse should be to resist them, not because, oh, well, it's different from what we do, but because, well, that's not biblical. Yeah. And it, so when we get away from that, we we start to stray off into various other forms of silliness. Yeah, and, and that's that's something that the church is constantly going to fight is, you know, nostalgia, basically. Um, Certainly. You know, in in the, you know, with regards to restoring the 1950s, I I don't see I see some of that, um, but you know, at the same time, that's that's also a very regional and very demographic related thing. Um, yeah, and that's fair. I think. You know, that's out he, fair. you know, out here, uh, I don't want to say that we're all uh, that we're all you know, running amok and going nuts out here in Oklahoma. Uh, but, you know, there aren't the same traditions with regard to formality that you see out here. To, to use a non-church example, um, that makes sense. Uh, to, to give you an idea, I, I think it really just describes the society or the, the culture as a whole. Out there, when you're, you know, if you, if you were to drive down the street Let's say there's, there may or may not be a median in the street, um, but you were to di- drive down the street one way, and coming the opposite way, you see a funeral procession. What what are you about to do? Normally, people pull over. Yeah. Uh, even notably, even when there's a median in the uh, uh, in in the road, you'll see that out in the southeast. Um, out here, that's not necessarily the case. You'll see it if there's no median. You'll see it if there's only two lanes of traffic. But if it's a divided highway, forget it. You know, people aren't going to stop. And, and that's not more or less respectful necessarily. It's just a different sense of traditions. And and, and I think that spills into the. And church. I personally like that one better anyway, because if you're not in the way, why get out of the way? But yeah, anyway, it, that's I, not the point. Well, and I kind of like the I kind of like the way it is out in the southeast better, where you know it's a sign of respect. That's why. Um, but that's but that's the point. Like it, it 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 doesn't actually matter. It's a tradition. And likewise, you see that in congregations that um, you know things that are borderline sacred cows in some congregations just don't matter in others. Um, you know, at or at the very least, they're not considered sacred cows. Uh, so we at Bridge Creek made the decision several months ago. And certainly before this pandemic started, to where we don't have a Sunday evening service, we go from 8:50 to 11:30 on Sunday mornings. Um, that's a devotional, that's a pew packers program, it's a Bible class and a worship service, and then we're done. Um, you know, and out here the response has been, well, I'm not sure if we could get that to work at our congregation because of our size but it's a good idea or there's some congregations that I, I don't know if we were the trendsetter for it, but we're one of the first ones and a few congregations have since adopted it out here. There's some congregations out there that, you know, we're going to keep meeting like this Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, because, well, that's what the church of the 1950s did. That's what the church right. in wartime did. And I realize that's a very trivial and almost cliche example to give. But 
it, it is still an example of the fact that you know the, these when we talk about these traditions and what the church looks like, um, it, it is going to vary a bit uh, region to region, and it's going to vary a little bit age group to age group. Um, and but I do wonder moving forward when you know say 30 years down the road when we're in our 50s and I'm about I'll be pushing 60. Um, uh, you know what the nostalgia will be? Is it going to be for you know when we were in our teens? Is it going to be for where it is right now? Uh, you know where that nostalgia is going to be because we fight against that uh, as much as we fight against anything else sometimes. Um, but but like you said, the, the goal here the goal here is to be about what Scripture says. Um, you know that's why the restoration plea is. You know we we sometimes sum up the words of Campbell, uh, you know, speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible's silent. Um, people throw that phrase around without actually believing it. Um, it, it it's if we put our focus in Scripture, uh, we become less concerned about what we're against and much more concerned about what we're for. Uh, and that list, I think, is going to be shorter uh, than than we sometimes give it credit for being, uh, you know that you know the, the list of things that we're for we're for christ we're for his work we're for his church and we could add a few things to that but that's the bulk of it um and, and one more thing uh sort of touching on that a little bit with regard to this pandemic uh it, it's it's made us rethink a lot of these things um you know we've we've had to rethink what it means to neglect the assembly uh you know you're going to have some I guess truthers to some extent basically say, well, this is what we've always thought. But in reality, I think a lot of people's interpretation of what it means to neglect the assembly has changed in the past four weeks. Um, You know, that it's not just simply, uh, well, you know, if you can physically make it to the building, you should be there, that there's, that there's something a bit deeper tied up in that passage uh, in Hebrews than, uh, maybe how many have traditionally uh, interpreted it. And I'm not suggesting that we're never going to meet in assemblies again, but I think we're starting to um, – it's giving us time to think about what's important to us, uh, how we do what we do and what we're going to do moving forward. And uh, I sent you an article by Tim Challies, um, uh, who's excellent blogger, um, Put out. Careful, he's a Calvinist. Yeah, he is a Calvinist, uh, but it's uh, it, yeah, yeah. That's gonna be enough for some people not to read him. But he's uh, yeah. Th- with this sort of thing, it's it even if even if that does turn you off, he's this is very much just a you know what is the church gonna look like? And I, I really think it 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 sort of crosses all boundaries here because he. They're asking a lot of the same questions we we're, we could be asking right now, but basically saying, you know, what's going to be different moving forward? Um, what about the church will be different uh, after the end of this? You know, and he starts off with some larger scale questions about what about our society is going to be different? Uh, what will the new normal look like is, is the title of the article. And, uh, you know, he asks questions like, you know, uh, he's got two kids who are going to go to college. He's a Canadian. He's got two kids who are going to go to college in the U.S. starting in August, and he wonders if that's a good idea to send them, understanding that the border could shut down all of a sudden, uh, just like it did in this pandemic. Um, 
what happens if schools reopen or when they reopen? How can we meet in crowds? Uh, how can we get to a point where everyone is comfortable returning? Uh, what about travel, Travel, which he travels a decent amount? Um, he's he's a fairly in-demand guy. Um, you know, what about the, uh, you know, when 9-11 happened, we had all these uh, governmental uh, powers exercised as far as who can fly and what it takes to get on a plane. Um, uh, and what's... Is there going to be any similarities between that and coronavirus affecting some of our uh, some of our health procedures? Uh, you know, and asking questions in light of what it's going to mean for congregations. Uh, and so, just sort of as we close here, we've been going on for a little while, but sort of as we close here, um, what it, you know, you can talk about the article itself if you want to. I'm more curious um, what changes you see the church making sort of by and large, I realize each congregation's autonomous. Uh, that being said, the vast majority of us made the decision between March 15th and March 21st to not meet the following Sunday or to meet in a very limited capacity. Uh, what changes do you think that the church will be making moving forward as a result of this coronavirus? Well, the, cha mo the change I've seen most evidently is even churches or congregations, if we'll uh, use that term, uh, have been a lot more proactive online. Uh, just for instance, like right now, uh, in my home congregation where I uh, worship and uh, uh, gladly just kind of help out where I can, uh, our minister, uh, he, since we've all been sort of homestuck, he has taken to um, engaging a lot more with uh, Facebook posts, especially uh, posts, uh, a, a helpful or inspirational thought every day, that sort of thing. And we've also started streaming services. Uh, our services are different in format now because of that, just by the necessity of the situation. But what I hope will be the case afterward is that will realize, well, hold on, people responded positively to this. So in as much as we can, let's keep this up. And other churches have been doing it for a while, so they've just been continuing to do so. Um, and what I hope will come out of it, uh, this might out me as a change agent. So some people will probably want me stoned for this. But um, uh, what I hope is that people will start to feel more comfortable in their own skin uh, in worship. And what I mean by that is uh, going to church, so to speak, in your own home and not feeling like you have to dress up or do that sort of thing changes some things. Because, again, I can't speak for where you're at, Chris, but where I'm at, it's still very traditional of there are going to be people that give you weird looks if you aren't wearing your quote-unquote Sunday best, which is a conspiracy from the 1800s anyway but that's a different story anyway but um more seriously what i hope is that more people will feel welcome <clears throat> excuse me to come as they are uh to worship uh not immodest not in a their pajamas or something silly like that but being able to say you know like this is something i've been able to welcome into my home so i feel more welcome here and being able to actually be more welcome is a hope of mine to come out of this.
Yeah, I, I think there's a comfort factor uh, with that. Um, you know, we're we're not coat and tie. Every guy is wearing a coat and tie every Sunday type congregation. Um, you know, a lot of our guys, a few of our guys are wearing t-shirts. Most of most of our guys are wearing, you know, like a polo and jeans or something. With a few of us wearing, a few of us do wear coat and tie. I I preach in the pulpit every Sunday in a coat and tie, but. I don't really feel like I'm under pressure to do that here like I might be at in other congregations. That's sort of left up to my own prerogative to an extent. Um, there's a reasonable expectation that I would look professional, and there's a reasonable expectation that if you're going to serve, you ought to look like you took that seriously. Um, you didn't but, just roll out of bed. Right, which, you know, when I was in college, uh, I had one of the elders at Finger, like freshman year, basically tell me at one point, hey, you look like you rolled out of bed. Well, I did. I woke up 20 minutes before service started, and it takes 15 minutes to get there. So, I, uh, you know, that that was jarring to me, but that, that's another story for another time. It, but it was the right kind of wake-up call, too. It's like it's not an issue with how you dress. It's an issue with you taking it seriously, and then that being reflected in how you dress. Um, but, yeah, that, that comfort factor is a part of that. Um uh, I, I keep thinking of a couple of different things. Um, the first is that I think we're going to have a renewed appreciation for actually gathering together. Um, Absolutely. You know, because we, we sort of get to experience a very small version of this, maybe once a year with regard to weather related things, but this is, this is different. Um, this is, this is nobody gets to come, and it's for an extended period of time. It looks like it's going to have been a minimum of five Sundays at the very earliest. Uh, it's been uh, – we just had our third streamed service at Bridge Creek this past Sunday. Um, I anticipate it's going to be another two more um, that we're going to look at. It's probably going to be through the end of April at the earliest, and then we'll reevaluate. Um, we've been evaluating on a weekly basis. But I, uh, I, it's something where looking at that, um, looking at our service, uh, I, I think people are going to be more appreciative, uh, more appreciative of the opportunity to gather together. Uh, and then the other thing I, I've seen mentioned before, and I hope we keep mentioning it. Um, most of us, this sort of cuts two ways. Um, most of us are isolated from one another right now. We're not able to see members of our church family. And, uh, I think we're realizing two things as a result of that. One, the need to be better communicating with one another, the, the, the need to stay in touch, Right. I've tried to call most of the members of our congregation. I haven't gotten around to a couple of them, but um, I've tried to call many of the members of our congregation uh, and be in touch with them and just check up on them. And a few of them have done that with me and, you know, just trying to stay in touch. That, but the other thing is, I've heard this phrase thrown around, the idea that we're experiencing right now for a short period of time what shut-ins uh, and people in nursing homes experience as their lives um that when it comes to 
their day-to-day lives, they live effectively in isolation and they are totally reliant on other people uh, for any sort of social contact, other people initiating that. Um, and that's something I think we would do well to not forget. Uh, we would do well to remember that moving forward because, you know, it's it's something where these are people who, who don't um, who don't have that same sort of interaction uh, who, who need uh, who are going to need that moving forward uh, even after this pandemic passes, even after the fear surrounding it passes. You've got people who are still going to be isolated. And if you feel miserable right now being isolated, if you feel out of touch, if you feel like your life has been put on pause, then imagine what it must be like to uh, to have that be the case and there be no end in sight. Because for the vast majority of us, this is going to end sooner rather than later. It may be weeks, might be months, worst case, but you know, for the vast majority of us, uh, Lord willing, we're we're getting through this and Sometime between now and the start of football season, according to the president, this will all be done. Um, but it's that isolation won't be done for everyone, and it's worth remembering those for whom the isolation will continue. And I, I think the, the church is more aware of that than it was a month ago, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, if that's the only good thing that comes out of this uh, coronavirus situation then i still think it's a good thing to come out of it it's it's something it's something worth taking away from it so well we have been talking for nearly two hours so i'm gonna go ahead and wrap us up thank you for listening to the deep in the tank podcast we will see you next time Thank you.